Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to another edition of Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. I'm founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. On our show today, we're going to be talking about academic medical centers. These are the places where doctors are trained, where research is done to expand new knowledge, and where some of the most cutting-edge clinical care is given to patients with both run-of-the-mill and off-the-wall diseases. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Block. He's Senior Associate Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. You're very welcome. Well, let's start by just giving the listeners a sense of of what is an academic medical center. Well, an academic medical center is the place where we train physicians of the future. We push back the frontiers of science and medicine so that we can devise the best and latest treatments for uh, diseases and get to understand more about uh, diseases. And finally, it's a place where we take great care of patients. It sounds like any one of those would be a major undertaking. Well, they're all huge. And what's really interesting about it is that we have so many people who actually are able in our uh, environment to do more than one of those jobs. That, that is neat. They must be extraordinary individuals. So you've, you've got, well, maybe you can talk to me in a little bit about the, the, the kind of people um, that you work with. Just the, before we do, the overall scope of the thing, what are we talking? Are we talking like a $10 million business? Uh, oh, no, much more than that. It's, really? Uh, uh, an academic medical center like Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center, of which Wake Forest University School of Medicine is part, has an overall budget of close to a billion dollars a year. A billion dollar business. Wow. It's huge. How many faculty uh, do you have at, at the school? We have uh, close to 1,000 faculty members, of whom about 650 are clinicians, many of whom do teaching and science as well. And the remainder are uh, mostly researchers who do some teaching as well as the research that they do. And you have people who do all three, I guess. Uh, it, must, it must be difficult to excel at all three at once. Um, you know, in the days gone by, in simpler times, people used to sit on what they called the three-legged stool, and academic physicians were expected to be excellent doctors, excellent teachers, and outstanding researchers. But life has become more complicated. Medicine is more challenging, and research is more challenging. Teaching has changed a lot. That it's really unusual for us to find somebody who can do all three things to the degree of excellence that we would expect uh, years and years and years ago. So these days we'll have some people who do basically clinical care and a little teaching, uh, 
a lot of people who do clinical care and a lot of excellent teaching. Some people who do clinical care and a lot of research and sort of dabble in teaching because there really isn't much time for them to do a huge amount of teaching. And finally, there's some great researchers, some of whom are really outstanding in educating medical students and all of whom are really involved in the education of the next generation of scientists who are, who are working on medical research. I imagine that um, a, a typical faculty person at a school of medicine, they're, they're caring for patients, who, who does patient care, so a clinical faculty person. They're taking care of patients, so they're working with residents, so they must be involved in teaching those residents and probably are either doing or staying on top of the latest research in order to be at the, the cutting edge of what they do. Well, let me take that and break it down a little bit. I think the, what we try to do at an academic medical center is really stay abreast of the state of the art in any uh, realm of uh, clinical care. So the kinds of doctors that we have here are the true experts, people who are on the cutting edge, living the cutting edge, doing that cutting edge research and education so that they can uh, uh, really impart their knowledge on the next generation of, of physicians. So that would be medical students and residents and, and what we call fellows or people who are training to be subspecialists. At the same time, they really need to be outstanding clinicians. And as I mentioned earlier, some of them are also outstanding uh, researchers. Now, you know, we've talked about how large your medical center is. Is it an average-sized academic medical center? Or? Yeah, we're, we're an average to slightly below-average-sized medical center. There are places that have uh, faculty sizes double ours. Um, there are uh, um, institutions like Harvard that, that are really giant. Uh, but um, there are others like Duke um, that are more or less of the same size as us. And um, I, th I understand you can take great pride in being in, certainly in the top half of how much external funding you have for research? We're in about the top third of what we have uh, in, term of, in terms of extramural research funding. Um, re extramural research funding, of course, in the current economic environment is under a lot of pressure. Uh, and so uh, the historic uh, um, sources of funding, like the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, uh, are... Um, uh, there's just not that much money to go around. And, of course, there's a huge number of people that we've trained to do research, so the competition for the dollars is greater. We're uh, competing for funding from a number of other places, such as the Department of Defense, uh, from uh, the Veterans Administration, from the National Science Foundation, and from uh, a number of, of uh, foundations. And we're also competing for funds from industry. Uh, we have a number of partners in industry who are doing legitimate medical research that we participate in to try and de uh, develop and uh, validate the use of new drugs. And so uh, those are the places that we go to uh, for funding of research. In the future, many places are going to be looking at uh, philanthropy. We're looking for people in the community of substantial means who are interested in perhaps investing in a research program at a, an academic medical center such as ours. Research is obviously a key focus. Let's talk um, more about that. You, you mentioned um, pharmaceutical company-funded studies. You know, I've done a lot of that in my time and, um, and um, am a big believer in it, but 
but I, but, but I think many of our listeners are concerned about the relationship between acad, academia and and for-profit drug companies, thinking that there's automatically some some bias. Um, you know, having cared for patients in an academic medical center for 20 years, I, personally, I'm really excited about the new drugs that have been made available through industry to help my patients. Um, is, this, is, is this relationship something that you have to manage? Well, the relationship between for-profit drug companies and, for that matter, uh, manufacturers of the many devices that we uh, use in the taking care of patients uh, and academic, academic medical centers has come under some scrutiny in the last several years. And it, the conflicts of interest uh, that uh, have emerged as a result of the relationships that have been historic have uh, come under scrutiny, as I mentioned. So we're working very hard to try to manage these conflicts. Um, there's a, a large um, uh, movement in the country right now to try and uh, put an arm's length distance between the marketing of these drugs and these devices and the development of these drugs and devices. And so uh, I think what we need to do is to make sure that we're continuing to push back the frontiers of science, that we're continuing to develop drugs and devices that are useful to patients, and that the intellect and inventiveness of the uh, academic physician and scientist isn't impeded. But at the same time, um, we shouldn't be uh, the ones who are marketing those drugs or, be seen, or seen to be marketing those drugs or, or devices or having a bias toward a particular drug or device that uh, um, is being marketed by a uh, company. In other words, uh, we shouldn't be accepting gifts from companies. We shouldn't be uh, uh, participating in programs that are purely for the purpose of marketing those drugs and devices. It, it seems like the, the public in general has, has a lot of faith in academic centers and has, uh, there's a reputation there that, that you don't want to mess around with. I think so, and I think that there's a real obligation for those of us who take care of patients to make sure that we're giving them absolutely the best care and choosing or helping them to choose absolutely the best and most appropriate evidence-based treatments for whatever it is that ails them. So uh, we sh if, if somebody comes with a, a certain uh, medical condition, we should have at our disposal the very best drugs available and we shouldn't be biased because we were given uh, a donation or a gift or a meal was paid for by uh, the, the manufacturer of a particular drug. Yeah, not only wouldn't you want to be biased, you wouldn't even want the, the appearance of a bias to be a problem. That's correct. But then we've got this challenge because um, what sometimes happens is we have had our research supported by a, a drug manufacturer. And the best way to handle that is to acknowledge to our colleagues and our patients that we've received um, uh, funding for the research from the particular manufacturer. And so by um, disclosing that to some extent, and actually often to a very large extent, we've managed the potential conflict and uh, disclosed that um, uh, there is an association uh, with, with that particular commercial entity. And uh, we give the uh, patients or the patient's family an opportunity to challenge us uh, to choose the best thing based on evidence, not on the relationships. You've made a nice segue from this, the research to, to patient care now where um, 
we need to make sure that people are getting the right treatments in an unbiased and with an appearance of unbiased way. With regard to uh, patient care at an academic medical center, you know, one of our previous guests on this show was had been in an academic setting, had moved to the, the private setting, and had given our listeners the advice to listen, if you've got a medical problem, you really ought to go see an academic physician uh, for the best possible care. Do you have a sense of, of quality and patient care at the academic medical center? You know, the state of the art in medicine has evolved and the requirements for maintenance of certification have evolved such that I think the quality of care at an individual physician level in the country is really very good. Um, I wouldn't uh, be able to say that one should only go to an academic medical center. However, I think academic medical centers do have that edge on the latest. They may be involved in the research on that particular condition or uh, rub elbows regularly with colleagues at other medical centers and universities who are doing research. They may have greater contact with uh, the knowledge themselves. They may be closer to the literature because that's part of what they do in terms of their teaching and research. And they may have those friendships with academic colleagues who are doing the the cutting-edge research. So in in many circumstances, the... um, optimum uh, may be at the uh, academic medical center. That said, though, um, community hospitals, physicians in private practice, render absolutely superb care for the average uh, condition and for most complicated conditions as well. One of the things that I I think uh, may throw some people is who they're seeing in an academic center. You have medical students and perhaps other health care uh, trainees. You have what are called interns and residents, uh, and uh, the public may not have any idea what that means, or, or fellows, clinical fellows. And then you have faculty. Um, c- can you tell the listeners a little bit about the scope of the kinds of people that may be caring for them in an academic c- medical center, and if there's anybody they need to be on the lookout for in terms of being nervous about being seen by them? Well, that's a really terrific question. And the best answer for it, I think, is that, uh, and it's going to be a little bit of a longer answer, um, is that what what we have in academic medical centers essentially is team-based medicine. There are many people on the team, some of whom are very experienced, others who may be in training or or less experienced. Uh, We're teaching institutions, so our students need to learn, and so do our residents and the people who are training to be subspecialists, and we call those ones fellows. Um, Usually the team taking care of a patient in an academic center will be uh, quite large. It's always headed by a very experienced uh, attending physician who is on the faculty of the medical school. Uh, This is somebody who has the title of of professor or associate professor or assistant professor, Um, usually somebody with a long white coat. and pockets full of stuff, <laughs> like stethoscopes and yeah. lights and things like that. And then you'll have a, an, another series of people who are going to be younger. They're going to have fresher faces. Their brows will be uh, a little bit less furrowed. Uh, and they will be the eager learners. They will be the, also the worker bees who provide the uh, day-to-day care for a lot of the uh, routine and sometimes the not-so-routine needs of the patients. 
And then finally, we do have the medical students whose uh, job it is to participate in an active fashion so that they will learn. But they are not in a position where they make any decisions. And so um, they're in a uh, learning mode, not a deciding mode. And they participate as learners. Um, you know, I've spoken to many patients over the years who uh, actually look forward to a visit from the medical student. The reason being that the medical student, first of all, is very interested in them as an individual, often has much more time than anybody else in the team because the student may have two or three patients, whereas the resident might have eight, and the attending physician might have 16 or 32 to see on that day. And so uh, the, the uh, families often love the visits from the medical students because they get that one-on-one -on -one attention that's really wonderful. Um, that's not to say you don't have access to the attending physician. And any patient in an academic center does have access to the person who is ultimately responsible for the care of their case. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're talking with Dr. Steve Block. He's Senior Associate Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. So this is maybe one of the central questions that, that, that people have. So we have the medical students there in training. We have the interns and residents, the um, people who've completed medical school. So they have their MD degree, but they're new doctors. The intern, their first year out, the residents, perhaps beyond that. Maybe there's others who've completed a residency or in some fellowship. And then the the faculty members. Now, now I'm a, an academic faculty member, and sometimes patients will say to me, oh, I don't want to see the resident. You know, I have the sense that that's like... Um, you know, wanting to have a football team without the linemen or something like that. I, I like your concept of, of there being a team. And you don't necessarily do better just by seeing uh, the, the supposed leader of the team. I, I agree with you there, Steve. I, I think that uh, two sets of eyes are always better than one, uh, even if one is a relatively inexperienced set of eyes. Um, uh, two minds are always better than one, and it's fascinating to me as I walk the halls, and uh, I'm also an active clinician myself, and uh, as I interact with patients and with residents and students and fellows, that uh, very often this team uh, tackling a diff difficult uh, problem together comes up with a better solution than any one individual could possibly have done so on their own. Um, to request only the attending physician and bypass the way the team usually works best is not necessarily in the patient's best interest. Um, I think that uh, people should be aware that uh, we are held to very high standards of confidentiality. So any medical student is held to the same sense, set of confidentiality rules by law that uh, I am as an attending physician that uh, there are very strict requirements for supervision, both for students and for residents and fellows, and that we, we are accredited for our training programs by national accreditation agencies that hold us accountable for the high quality of care and of instruction that occurs in our organizations. So um, there's, there's really no downside, in my view, to being in an academic medical center, and actually a lot of advantages to seeing this, these many layers and the many people on our team. One of the things I find is that I, you know, I'm not just a specialist in my area, but I'm a super subspecialist and extraordinarily good at one particular area of uh, dermatology. And I'm okay at other areas where, while 
Um, I, I think that's true of many academic faculty. And these residents that I work with, since they work with all of the faculty, they seem to have uh, absorbed the special expertise of numerous different areas so that uh, they may, may be some of the most well-rounded uh, clinicians in the team. That's right. Uh, a very good friend of mine who's chair of surgery here uh, talks about how a surgeon uh, really, uh, uh, somebody finishing medical school uh, going into a surgery program is really sort of a fertile field uh, for um, the learning of the surgical uh, skills. And actually, even on completion of the five or seven years of training after getting your MD, they're still learning and only become uh, uh, experienced enough to start asking uh, questions a little bit later on once they've been out in the field working on their own or working in, in teams. In other words, uh, medicine is a... a, a we, we, we talk about the habits of lifelong learning, that uh, people in our field are always students till the day they retire and no longer see patients. And many of us actually continue to study medicine even after retirement. Um, it's the, uh, coming back to your concept of um, uh, our students being exposed to people who are very expert in very small areas, but by exposure to so many of them, uh, they become fairly well-rounded. I think there's real merit to that uh, point. I think uh, if you get the best of what everybody who teaches you has to offer uh, and you absorb it well, as most of our residents and fellows do, you are for sure going to be that rounded uh, or as rounded as possible a product by the time you graduate from your residency program. But I think what's more important is you're also prepared well to continue to be a learner for the rest of your life. We've talked about patient care and about research, and now a lot of it keeps overlapping with this educational role, um, not just the medical center's uh, faculty being con students for their whole lives, but the medical center is responsible for that continuing education. They're responsible for that initial medical education. That in, in, is in and of itself a major undertaking, isn't it? It's a huge undertaking. We have at Wake Forest, we have 120 students per year for four years, so that's 480 students. And this is a moderate-sized school, as I mentioned. There are schools that have double that number of students in each class. Um, we take students who've got an undergraduate degree, uh, have done some pre-med stuff, so they understand a little bit of the sciences involved, the biologic sciences involved, and some chemistry. And we have four years to mold them into uh, a product that is ready to enter residency, not necessarily ready to practice medicine. Uh, so the goal of our, our undergraduate medical education is to train people to be ready to be to enter the next uh, phase of their training, which is choosing a specialty, whether it's in family medicine or pediatrics or general internal medicine, or whether it's in a surgical subspecialty or uh, dermatology. Um, the uh, um, amount of knowledge that a medical student needs to get their heads around these days is infinitely larger than it used to be because the amount of medical information doubles and triples every year. It's an exponential function in terms of new knowledge. Uh, we don't expect them to know absolutely everything about everything, but we do teach them how to find the answers to the questions. 
so that uh, they can uh, assimilate those questions and find the answers easily and put them to, to good use well. We also find ourselves in a stage where um, not only is the knowledge base growing, but the actual practice of medicine is going to be continuously changing, I, I, I presume, forever. Um, over the last year and a bit, uh, we've uh, been uh, uh, in a state of flux as uh, healthcare reform has become a hot topic in the country. And whether uh, one's pro or against, it's a reality. Uh, even those who are against the current form of healthcare reform say that there, need, there is a need for uh, reform. So healthcare reform will be a continuous process moving forward. We have to prepare our students for practice in a new world. We have to give them the skills to be adaptable as, uh, um, as, as the environment for healthcare changes. And as the baby boomers age and the needs for an aging generation grow, we have to figure out ways with a relatively limited number of people graduating from medical school and a burgeoning need for physicians. We have to find ways for our doctors to work in teams with other healthcare providers like nurse practitioners and physician's assistants and uh, others like physical and occupational therapists, social workers and the like uh, to provide the best care for, for patients in the most cost-effective fashion. Uh, and uh, in a way that is uh, patient-centered. In other words, the patient is the center of the team's work, uh, and the patient is therefore happy and well taken care of. As an undercurrent to the, the patient care, the research, the education, it seems that there's a greater need to document and assure quality um, you mentioned maintenance of certification. We're not certifying people for life and for, at the level of, of uh, medical board training anymore. Uh, in the research world, I imagine you have greater assurances you have to provide about your relationships with industry or the, 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 um, relation, the, the way your researchers interact with research subjects. This seems like it might be a whole fourth leg of your academic medical center. Well, uh, academic medical centers and anybody who's involved in research and, and education has a large um, sort of administrative core that deals with many of these uh, administrative issues and compliance issues. So uh, we at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, as with most research-intensive medical schools, we have an office of research whose job it is to make sure that uh, the uh, research that is done that is done is compliant with federal and other regulations. That we take the best care of patients who uh, are willing to participate in clinical trials, and that uh, the patients' rights are appropriately taken care of. Uh, we want to make sure that um, when we're using toxic chemicals and even radioactive materials in re research experiments, that they are handled and disposed of appropriately. And uh, many medical schools uh, uh, use animals uh, as part of, the, um, of their research, and uh, we are held to a very high standard of care for these animals so that animal, uh, animals in research are treated humanely and according to the ethical standards that are laid down uh, uh, by law and by custom. Dr. Block, I, I just don't think there's any way we could possibly cover you know, all the different aspects of an academic, you have a billion-dollar academic medical center enterprise uh, that takes care of all sorts of patients and 
does research teaching in, in our 30-minute uh, program. But um, you have any final thoughts for our listeners on, on their health or our health care system? Um, well, I, I guess I think the message is that uh, the future of healthcare in this country depends on a number of things. The training of the next generation of doctors who are going to be sensitive to the needs of the community and the, and the illnesses, and particularly uh, to try and promote wellness, uh, good lifestyles, healthy living, etc. And I'm sure your listeners have heard a lot about that over the years. Uh, academic medical centers have also got an obligation to uh, try to figure out uh, what works and what new ideas can bring health to people who are not well and promote health in those who are. Uh, and uh, finally, I think we have a social obligation. I think we have an obligation to uh, continue to participate in ways in which healthcare can be delivered to large numbers of people so that we can continue in the United States to be uh, a leader in uh, health in the world. That's a great message. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Steve. In addition to having this role as host of a podcast radio program, I have the pleasure of being a faculty member at a major academic medical center. And I'll tell you, it is an awesome job to have. It's exciting being on the cutting edge of treatments, working with colleagues who are themselves experts in different areas, in working with the young residents, those people who've graduated from medical school and who are now gaining clinical training in my field, dermatology, um, learning from them in addition to teaching them, and working with the, the newbies, the medical students, who are as enthusiastic as can be about becoming a physician. This is a great place to get clinical care. It's an exciting place for our society in that this is the place where new treatments, um, many of them are being developed and tested. Honestly, as, doc, as Dr. Block was saying, I don't think everybody needs to see an academic physician for their clinical care. I know that the people who we train uh, are extraordinary individuals and are providing great clinical care in the private practice setting. But it is kind of fun um, being an academic physician, and certainly that's where you know I choose to get my health care. I hope our show today has given you a really good sense of what the academic medical center is like. Maybe not at the nitty-gritty detail level, but just a, an overall sense of the place and its roles in, in teaching physicians, in, in doing basic research into health, and in giving patients truly cutting-edge, high-quality medical care. It will be interesting to see um, what with healthcare reform, how the Academic Medical Center will evolve, how it will respond to changes in the funding, how it will continue its role in education, research, patient care, and, and, and meeting the needs of the communities uh, that Academic Medical Centers serve. Well, that's your show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it and will join us again next time. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health. 
Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare. 